Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, post-Ashes. In fact, it almost feels like the Ashes was long, long ago. So much has sort of happened since, although it was only last weekend that England finally capitulated that 4-0 loss. And lots of people have been having their say, they're giving their two penneth about what England need to do. Simon, you're back in town. You've done your flight back from Australia and uh, probably had to put your long trousers on, have you? I have yours, yeah. It's a bit chillier here, I've noticed. About one degree when I was walking the dog today, so the long trousers had to go on. Everyone's have their say, haven't they? Uh, since the, the Ashes have finished about what's wrong with English cricket and everyone's putting their solutions forward or suggestions forward for the improvement of England's uh, test match cricket, especially when they come up against Australia or they come up against India away from home. I remember doing an interview with AC Smith, who was the... You know, former chief executive of the Teston County Cricket Board in the early 90s. And it was the same old questions you were asking. What's wrong with English cricket? How can English cricket improve? You know, why is it at such a low ebb? It just keeps on coming round. And it often happens after a, a defeat in Australia. And there have been so many over the years. That's the point, isn't it? England have been unsuccessful in Australia yeah. so often. And... You, know, you you think back to that um, that interview with A.C. Smith. I remember him saying, I, this answer still sticks in my mind from, what is it, 25-odd years ago, probably more than that. He said, well, something, well, if we could just uncover another Ian Botham tomorrow, all our problems will be over. But actually, fortunately, since then, that's not what happened. You know, we went to four-day cricket. We went to two divisions. We went to central contracts. You know, people looked for solutions uh, to some of the problems. And actually, if you look at the, the 2000s, England had a, a pretty successful test match team. They were, they were good. They won the Ashes in Australia in 2010-11. So it's not impossible. So what it needs is that sort of really structured, cohesive thinking, really getting to the bottom of what, what the problems are and not, not having a knee-jerk reaction, but really thinking it through in a, in a sort of sensible, orchestrated way and trying to come up with some solutions. And also, not, it won't happen in the short term. You know, it, it's got to happen in the long term, isn't it? it you know, it'll take a while you know, if, if these changes are made. If changes are made, it'll take a while for them to, to go through the system and produce better, uh, you know, more consistent uh, and high-quality cricketers to go and compete in places like Australia and, and India and New Zealand as well. It was ever thus. If you think back, England lost 5-0 in 1921 to Australia to the Warwick Armstrong team. And there were no doubt massive recriminations after that. And, and actually, it's interesting, but it's 10 years, isn't it? Exactly, pretty much, till since England won the Ashes in Australia under Andrew Strauss and came back, you know, all, all heroes and were number one test team in the world at the time. 
they were also at a pretty low ebb in the one-day series, and they went to the World Cup, got knocked out. 2015 got knocked out again pretty early in the tournament, and our red ball cricket was going well. Our white ball cricket was was totally awful, and now it's the it's it's completely the reverse, as uh, we'll find out probably in the next few days, because amongst all the cricket going on around the world, England are playing in the West Indies, five T20s starting on Saturday. And I say, you know, it feels because the the Ashes does feel like a long time ago because there's so much cricket happening. We've seen the end of the India South Africa Test series, which South Africa did really well to win. They're now playing a one day series. There's the women's Ashes going on as well. England lost that first T20 to a, a brilliantly drilled Australia team, and there's also Zimbabwe Sri Lanka as well. So a huge and the Under 19 World Cup. <laughs> I nearly forgot. So, you know, there's so much cricket going on. We're going to hear from Owen Morgan in this show because he was our guest in the Virtual Cricket Club the other night and he's got some good stuff to say about the England side and the opportunities that uh, this little series presents itself with as well as some more general thoughts about captaincy as well. So great to have him on. He's coming up in the second half. Um, What do we start with here, though? I mean, there's a lot of choice, isn't there? Well... Let me ask you one question then, uh, just to, to kick this podcast off. If you were to make one, ch- I mean, everyone's putting their views forward about how England can change. If you were to make one or two changes, where where would they be, and what would be your focus for trying to improve English Test match cricket? I would try and make sure that there is a championship match every week in the season. I would play championship cricket at the same as the hundred, same time as the hundred. And I would make sure the pitches were really good, in the, especially in the middle of the season. Uh, I'd penalise counties for preparing green pitches in particular. I don't mind if they turn; that's fine. Uh, if they're dry, they need to be. They need to start fairly dry, I think, and not have too much grass on them in the middle of the season to just encourage batsmen to to bat a long time. You know, maybe extra points for. You know, long big innings or something. You know, perhaps they could add a couple of bonus points if you get 600 or 500 or something. But just encourage batsmen to stay in somehow. And, you know, if you look at what New Zealand did, their cricket was at a very low ebb. Their Red Bull cricket was at a very low ebb 10 years ago. And they uh, improved their pitch. It was the main thing they did and made sure that you could bat for a day and it wasn't batting wasn't a lottery. And I just think that has happened too much of late. So better pitches, so much harder for bowlers to to yeah. take wickets in English conditions. I think one of my focuses would be on on younger players and coaching at a, at a younger age and solidifying techniques, something in that area, mm. so that you do have players coming through that perhaps are more focused on red ball cricket and the importance of red ball cricket. It may be that you have to. It's quite a difficult thing to do at a young age, though, isn't it? To sort of separate red ball batters from white ball batters because you know there can, there can be some interchange I mean one, one thing I, I noticed that's happened uh, since the ashes uh, Liam Livingston's name has been put forward isn't it you know he, he I've, I've seen a few people saying you know, he should be should have been in the ashes yeah you know, he's that x-factor player he, he should be an England player that uh, that the test selectors focus on in the future I mean, I mean but we had him in the virtual cricket club didn't we mm. well, one, early early before Christmas yeah. when he was out in the in the UAE and he was saying you know my technique at the moment for red ball cricket is a bit shot actually mm. wasn't he? he was saying you know, actually some of the improvements that I've made in my white ball cricket actually 
mitigate against me in red ball cricket. He was actually really honest, and he and he you know he didn't make himself uh, available for the Lions uh, to, to you know to go to Australia. He, almost accepting that you know he's got those flaws that wouldn't suit red ball cricket. So you know sometimes. He is an exciting player, but sometimes you look at someone like him and you you sort of need to examine the situation a bit more closely. That's not to say that he can't make a success of of red ball cricket. I'm sure he can. But even he is saying my technique at the moment is not quite strong enough for for red ball cricket. So, you know, if he gets thrown in, say, into the the West Indies series in, in March and doesn't succeed, you know, you think, well... Hold on a second. Even even the player himself was was saying a few months ago mm. that I'm not quite ready. I mean, David Warner's made a success out of, of yeah, test has, cricket, yeah. having come through the T20 yeah. route. The, yeah. You know, basically, Leon Livingston has a a very good eye and a good approach mm. to cricket. He works hard. He understands the game well. He he's imaginative, and I think he could easily adapt to test cricket. Obviously, he needs to to, to focus on it if he wants to play it because. The two formats are diverging massively. And, I mean, another little change I think I'd try and attempt to do or, you know, something I'd try and do is is, is get highlight somebody like Joe Root a bit more and how he bats. Because a lot of young people particularly consume test cricket, especially, just on highlights clips, and which is a great thing because, you know, the opportunity to watch the wickets and the fours and so on is, is brilliant for people who perhaps wouldn't have seen them otherwise. But it makes you think that's all that happens in the game. And test cricket is so much more about discipline, defence, selectivity, subtlety. And you don't get that on, on the clips. So I would want to try and make some special features, which I suppose would only appeal to a certain element of the community, about the skills of someone like Joe Root and really admire them and 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 because in the end young people you know kids they copy they copy i mean that's how i grew up you know watching the cricket on telly and copying botham's slower ball or john snow's running in or whatever you know you, you bob we all trying to imitate bob willis didn't we at times and that's how you learn so and in the same way for, for batting um you know you're going to learn from watching the way that the great players do it um, and at the moment, all you see is highlights clips if you haven't got Sky so or BT in this case. So, you know, that's another thing I probably think needs happening, to happen. And, you know, I think I definitely think Livingston's got potential, partly because he's such a good bowler. I think his bowling, and, you know, Owen Morgan said in the Virtual Cricket Club the other night that his bowling has really come on fast. His leg spin in particular could be really valuable in the, the short, well, the medium term in, in a longer format so it'd be nice to see him do you think in a longer format yeah, though, a lo- it works not? doesn't it work it works well, yeah, in a short true, format I because mean, you can bowl licorice all sorts licorice. and get away with it but i think there's some cons- consistency there it depends if he's prepared to work at it i mean steve smith started at a leg spinner didn't he and he said he gave up bowling because it was too hard to to be a leg spinner this required so much practice and so much dedication and he wanted to put more of that time into his batting and leg spin, you know, was just really difficult to master. So it may be that that Livingston's bowling never kind of quite gets to up to speed. But I reckon he'd do a better job than one or two of the others who've played recently at the moment. By the way, I mean this whole red ball discussion. We're going to extend this next week, and in our virtual cricket club on Thursday night, we're just going to talk about 
Does red ball cricket actually matter, really? I mean, does it? Well, it does to me. And, and I think the, the reaction to the Ashes and England's loss in the Ashes suggests that people really do care about it. That people are sort of actually sick and fed up of England going to Australia and being thumped from pillar to post. And it, it's, as you say, it's just it happens very regularly. It seems, I, I mean, I, hadn't, I haven't looked into this in, in great depth, but it does seem that the uh, margins of victories in, in recent Ashes series are just sort of seem to be getting bigger and bigger. The games seem to be even more one-sided. I, you know, I may be wrong, but I, you know, I remember you say 94-5, England lost 3-1. They, had a, they were very competitive in the third test in Sydney. They were well beaten in Melbourne well and, and reasonably well beaten in Brisbane as well, though that game went to the final day. They came back and they won in Adelaide and they were then quite well beaten in Perth. And, 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 and since then... Australia have been you know extremely dominant and there's barely been a close ashes test match I mean you know England got away with a draw in Sydney but I mean they were still they were well beaten in inverted commas weren't they I mean they Australia totally controlled the match right from the start of the game so yeah I, well, I think people do really care actually whether it's whether there's a generational thing whether it's people who are older you know if you look at the demographic people are, I don't know over what age over 45 or something or over 50 you know really care and, and perhaps people younger actually you know, just shrug their shoulders and are more interested in, in the white ball. I don't know. That's a bit of a generalisation. So, yeah, I, I sense that, that I sense there's a, a real care about what happened. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit, but I, I think that white ball cricket, 50 over cricket and 20 over cricket is more the kind of cricket that most people play, mm. isn't it? You know, the, the average club player or cult or school player now that's what they play is twenty over or fifty over. So actually, you identify with those formats. A bit yeah, but yeah, you, you say that. Yours, but I mean, when I, I mean, when I was growing up, I just liked cricket. You know, I loved the Sunday League and I loved the Championship yeah. Test matches. I just, you know, it didn't matter what the format of the game was. And and I feel the same way now. You know, if I watch a, a T Twenty match, I'm I'm in a way just as engrossed in that game as I am I would be in a Test match in a slightly different way. And you you know you, you probably mm. care more about the outcome of a of a test match but I mean like, you know if you, if you watch a, you know you watch I don't know watch a World Cup semi-final England playing New Zealand you know you're at that T20 match absolutely engrossed in every single ball you're living every moment and it's the same with a test match as well you know you, you're, you're really into it so I I don't think it's I don't perhaps don't think it's quite as straightforward as that oh it's it's only white ball or only red ball people are interested I think people I think a lot of people are just interested in cricket and want and, and just like different aspects of it um, that, yeah. that's, I mean, that's how I would see it anyway. I mean, I'm, everyone's, everyone's yeah. different. But. Right, but well, anyway, that's a, it's a good debate to have. And so that's the debate we're going to have next Thursday in the Virtual Cricket Club. And we want to hear from you. So you can join our club for £3 a month and join in that discussion next Thursday night at 7pm, 7.30pm actually, I think it is. Uh, um, as I say, we really want to hear your views as well. So we've got lots of members in the Virtual Cricket Club, but we want new members to give us your points of view on this. And the more solid and, and kind of interesting the views are, that we'll make a podcast out of it, the more kind of influence we can have on the direction of travel of the game as well. So I urge those of you who are listening to this to join our club, not just... For that particular evening but for the, the interviews that we'll have with leading players coming up as well one of whom will be not that he's a leading player but Stephen Fry has agreed to come on in our club uh, in a couple of weeks time so he'll be quite an interesting one to listen to even though he won't give us much insight on how to win the ashes no but he's always entertaining to listen to so yeah absolutely worth um, 
uh, tuning in for that evening. So you can join us by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com. And it's a burgeoning club with a great WhatsApp group as well. Lots of interesting uh, comment from around the world, uh, keeping you up to date, up to speed on all that's going on in the cricket world. Worldsbestcricketclub.com. So the ashes are over. It feels a little bit like the end of the world in a way for, for English cricket, doesn't it? It has that real sort of feeling of, of sort of depression hanging over the game. But the game goes on. As you said, there's so much cricket being played around the world. And the England white ball side is in action uh, this weekend. The first of five T20 matches against the West Indies. And it's a pretty strong England white ball side, actually. You, you look at it and you th- well, none of the test players are involved. Uh, and no one who's in Australia. So there are a few missing. You know, the likes of Butler... Bearstow, Milan, Wokes and Wood from that World Cup semi-final. But still Ali, Livingston, Morgan, uh, Billings, he's flown out there. He took about four flights to get out from Australia, from, from Hobart, to get to Barbados in time for the first match. Whether he'll play or not it remains to be seen. Uh, Jordan and Rashid. Uh, Mills is there. Timal Mills, of course, who was involved in England's T20 uh, World Cup campaign and then got injured. R- Jason Roy, he got injured as well, remember, that, that hamstring problem. So he, he's out there as well. So there's still a lot of quality. And it'll also be interesting to look at perhaps England, some of England's backup bowling in that T20 uh, side. So the, the pace bowlers are Payne of Gloucestershire, Garten of Sussex, Chris Jordan is there, uh, Saqib Mahmood, who some people thought could have featured at some point in the Ashes, Timal is there, and also uh, Reese Topley. So those are the, the, the six uh, pace bowlers, and then the, the three spinners in the squad, Moen Ali, Rashid and, and Livingston, and actually four spinners, because uh, Dawson's out there as well, if you, if you include uh, Liam Livingston among England's uh, spin attack, and I think they do, definitely. I think they see him as a, a really important member of the side. It does show, doesn't it, Yoz, uh, that, that the strength in England's white ball cricket, which really contrasts with a sort of paucity of talent, you feel, in, in red ball cricket. There's so many holes in that England... Red Bull team, but there are some holes in the White Bull team, and we'll hear Owen Morgan expand on that in, in uh, very shortly. Uh, but there's, there's, certainly in the batting, there's a lot of it seems to be a lot of strength in depth. I hope uh, Billings does play actually, because who's going to keep wicket if he doesn't? I suppose Tom Banton can keep wicket, but you know, which is I'm sure he'll do a perfectly good job. And in a way, keeping in T20 isn't probably as important as in other formats because the ball hardly passes the bat, uh, but. Anyway, uh, yeah, Billings is important. Yeah, but uh, as you say, kind of very good testing ground, especially for England's bowlers. Uh, Jason Roy has shaped up well so far with a 36-ball 100 in a a warm-up game, which is pretty impressive. But it it will be a good examination of uh, both England's power play bowling and also their, their death bowling. And I suppose the great thing is, uh, leading into to Morgan's chat, is that even though there are a lot of regular players missing, there still is a, a real richness of talent that England have to, to pick from for white ball cricket. We're very, very fortunate. I think we have a, a lot of young, talented white ball cricketers in our country that do unbelievably well. And probably the last two or three years, we've really seen guys go and travel outside of our shores uh, and you know, really test themselves, become key overseas players in the likes of the Big Bash, the Pakistan Pakistan Super League, uh, the Caribbean Premier League. They've gone away 
And the six months that you'd normally spend in an indoor school, say for me in Finchley, not making any mistakes, trying to groove a technique and, um, and work on your game, uh, opportunities now around the world are, are making cr- young cricketers better because they're making more mistakes earlier and they're able to learn a lot more about their game. And by the time they get to playing to international cricket, they played in front of big crowds. They played every game on TV because that's the nature of T20 cricket now. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's brilliant. It wasn't around when I was coming mm-hmm. through at Middlesex or, or, or for the first few years, certainly. But the opportunity to go and, and to apply your skill under pressure is, is great. And I think it's great for the game. I think it's a really good thing that there is an appetite around the world to play so much cricket. So during this tour, we're going to see um, quite a few guys that, that will get opportunity um, and potentially with, with a view in mind, not to this World Cup, in, in up and coming World Cup in Australia in November, but the, the one after that potentially. So uh, do you look at players differently um, with T20 and 50 over in mind? Mm, no, I don't think so. And, and the reason behind that, Yaz, I think, since 2015 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, T20 cricket and 50 over cricket has become <laughs> slow, so aligned mm. that the type of cricket that you need to play is very, very similar. There are very few guys that that, that would play one and not the other. The, you, I think you find certainly within our group of players, we have guys who, who, who certainly across the board, there aren't a lot of changes between the teams. Um, certainly when we're at full strength, there might be one or two, but it's, you know, the, the, the style of cricket now that is played around the world in order to win a world tournament is something that, that certainly since I've started playing international cricket back in 2009 has completely changed. Certainly the fielding, the batting and the bowling, everything has just gone up a notch in such a, what I think is a short period of time. Um, go back to the 2010 T20 World Cup out here in the West Indies that we won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought we were one of the best sides in the tournament playing a, a brand of cricket that nobody else was playing. And I look back at it now and think, geez, cricket has changed so much so fast that in, ten, in another 10 years' time, I, I, I'm not sure where the game is going to be. Captaincy, you know, you always look incredibly composed, calm, you know, completely relaxed, despite what's going on around you. Have you always had that? I mean, I, I remember you, actually, I'll just tell you a quick story. I remember you at 16 playing against Chesham and sort of batting, scratching around for a few runs in a benefit game and then suddenly whacking a ball over the top for six and finishing the game. And I just thought, blimey, where's that come from? And you kind of had that, even then, you seemed to have an aura of quite relaxed sort of confidence, even though you were probably very shy. But captaincy wise you know have you always had that composure do you think or have you learned it i i think i've learned it i don't don't think it's always been there i think i've i've had to work on certain things in big moments of the game so when i wasn't captain like finding that calmness and that rationale in the middle while you, while you're trying to chase down a total uh, is something that yes came natural to me but if there was pressure being shifted on me as a batsman i use a mechanism where i'd always engage with the scoreboard so i would in my head i would 
shout out the score. I would shout out what I'm on. I'd shout out what I need, what the run rate is at. And then I'd look at the bowlers and see how many overs each bowler had left and how. So you could formulate a plan that was completely in the reality of things, regardless of what is going on around you. And that's something that I've continued to do over the years, um, particularly in, in big moments of a game, captaining out in the field. I continuously engage with the scoreboard to stay in the reality of what's actually happening, regardless of a guy bowled a good ball or a bad ball. It doesn't make a difference if it's a big six or a small six. The impact in the game is still the same. So it's, it, it's something that I have worked on and I think become better at just purely by doing it over and over again and making it a habit. Do you ever look back at games and not analyse your batting, but analyse your captaincy and your sort of your general demeanour? All the time, every right. game. Uh, again, I'm always trying to learn. I'm, I'm always picking guys' brains about decisions that they would make and why they would make them and how they made them work and why they didn't work sometimes. Um, but also, the, uh, one of the reasons for, just for the members, uh, myself and Nathan Lehman, our, our analyst, um, have communication during a game. This came in about a year and a half ago. And normally pre- a year and a half ago, we would sit down and we would have meetings together. We would pick out information. The coaches would be involved as well. We'd sort of dissect the game where we could impact the game and try and identify when the big moments would be and try and get your big players in those big moments. So that's how it would normally work. Uh, so the decisions would be left to me and Joss out on the field. When it came to reviewing what I decisions I made as a captain and why, sometimes they weren't, I suppose... It wasn't an easy review system because so many decisions are being made in the game that sometimes you might have missed something. So the reason, one of the reasons we brought in this system was both to open up a line of communication with the black and white of what the numbers were and try and implement them into a game. But also when it comes to reviewing my decision, it's easier to identify why I went with it and what the situation of the game was there and then. So... Yes is the answer to your question. I always try and work on my game, mm. both with the bat and as a captain. Because certainly one of the things I felt before we brought in the system was that we with such a group, like an, an unbelievable group of talented players. And we always haven't had this, you know, <laughs> ever since I've played for England. We've not had the the, the good fortune of have, having an abundance of aggressive batsmen, you know, two all-rounders in every team that we select. Um, normally two spinners at your disposal in the final eleven. The challenge for me and, and, and the coaches and, and Nathan then is, get, is getting them in the right situation of the game. So it goes a little bit against the grain of what naturally you would feel as a captain sometimes. So say I was captaining New Yaws, we played tomorrow against the West Indies and you took five for five for 10, man in a match, brilliant. And then two days later, we play against Australia. And I know that you don't match up well against Australia, even though you've taken five for 10. So as a captain, I don't bowl you. I potentially don't even pick you in the fixture. That's for me, that's utilising the information better than we normally would, as opposed to saying, yours is in great rhythm, great form, he'll adapt and he'll get better. Where in actual fact, all of the information is suggesting, suggesting the otherwise. And I think you know, 10 years ago, you would have played and whatever. Yeah, and I'm probably not done very well. I mean, it's interesting, but I actually introduced Nathan to Billy Bean, the famous character from Moneyball, 
recently on a Zoom call like this, and uh, Billy Bean said, because of his work in baseball, and I don't know if you've you probably read Moneyball, haven't you, seen the film, but um, he reckons that in the future in sport, more and more maths graduates like Nathan are going to be more influential than traditional coaches. I agree with that to a certain extent because in, in, in cricket and in, in any sport, all of the information is out there. Anybody can yeah. access it. How you implement it is the most important thing. There are 10 IPL franchises now, all worth a billion dollars, all have the same information, all going into a mega auction right now, trying to plan out a 10-year plan as it might be the last mega auction, all with the same information, all with, all with the same aspirations but we'll have different targets throughout the auction. So no matter the squad each team comes with, I think the most effective and most successful will be the side who, who manages the transferring of information and tactics and articulating that to the players and, and making it work. So I agree with the use of the information is critical, but I think your, you know, your most successful teams, Mumbai, Chennai, Calcutta, so Stephen Fleming, Mahela Jai Warner and yeah. Brendan McCullum yeah. then yeah. then become the guys who implement the plan. And if they can't implement it, it's 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 pointless. It's like any plan. It it might as well be you know nothing, just what well, words and numbers on a paper. Who who is your would you say your biggest influence as captain? Who has been your biggest influence on your captaincy? I'd say it's Andrew Strauss. When I first started at Middlesex, he was in and around the England setup. Um, so he would come back and play and he, he wasn't captain at that stage but even getting the exposure watching how an international cricketer prepares, talks articulates, trains and ultimately leads around the group that he's, he's, he's just a, was, it was a great sort of visual for me and certainly then playing under him over the years he, um, there, were, there are certainly a lot of lessons that I've learned and implemented in my own captaincy that I watched him just nail over the years. Uh, everybody who plays under him talks about how he, how he used to communicate to players, how on point he always was. When I, I became captain, I asked him, you know, what was the reason behind it, do you think? There, there must have been some sort of method. As an interesting answer, and an answer like it's something that I use in, in, a, in applying sort of my principles as, as a captain. And it was just, he listens. You know, a lot of captains and a lot of leaders come in and blurt out, what they want and, and how they want it and when they want it. But choosing the time to deliver that message is more important than the message because if people aren't listening, it's, 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 it's pointless. So every time you're around a, a bigger group or you know, a couple of guys in a corner, lend your ear. You don't have to speak. Just, just listen, take in the mood, take in what's happening. So I thought that was unbelievable advice. Very simple, but on point. I uh, I heard him do a talk once about leadership, actually, and he t he used the phrase leadership from behind, which doesn't quite the same as what you're saying, but sort of coaxing people and, as you say, sort of almost letting them make the decisions, kind of steering them in a direction, but then allowing them to actually make the decisions. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd, the best way I've heard leadership be described, everybody uses the bus. Um, metaphor of people you need to get bums on seats everybody going in the right direction and whatever the leader drives the bus the best one i've heard is actually the leader is is, is the conductor the leader goes around sees everybody takes their ticket checks in 
make sure they're going in the right direction, make sure they're in the right seat and goes up and down the bus consistently and have a little bit of a chat with everybody, even the driver. And so I, I quite like that. Conduct shows how long it is since you've been on a bus. You never see a bloody conductor and I've one for 10 years. Anyway, um, <laughs> listen, I, I, Simon Mann's not here, so he sent me just a couple of questions uh, that I'm just going to read out. First question from, from Sman is, how do you keep your batting game going when you play relatively little cricket? What's your practice yeah, philosophy? That's, that's a good, good question. I've, it, I've stumbled across it, to be honest. And I have to go back to 2015 during our summer where I took a break for five weeks in the middle of the summer. I just, uh, it had been quite a, a strenuous winter where I, I hadn't stopped playing for seven months and just, I, I got sick of the side of, of playing cricket. And I went away, took a break, didn't hit any balls, um, practiced for about three days before a one day series that we played against Australia. And I came and got runs. And from that moment, I've developed a, a level of trust within my game that, that I don't lose it by taking time away. And I actually come back with a fresh perspective, focusing on the, the simple things as opposed to playing a lot and then doing things for, for the sake of it. So I stumbled across the method a bit, but I, I, it's continued to work for me. I remember when you played a, a white ball game in about 2015 or something like that, and you got a pair at Merchant Taylors, you then threw your white pads away and hardly played a white ball, a red ball game since then. Have you played? Have you still got any whites? No, I don't think I do. I think I'm, I've, I've, I'm getting to an age and a time in my life where I'm allergic to to, to whites. Standing out there so, for four hours, <laughs> possibly two days as well. Yeah. Do you want to? Co- this is again, Simon. Do you want to coach man or manage, or do you when you finished, or do you would you like to do something? Prefer to do something outside the game. Uh, I'd like to do both. I've been doing stuff outside of the game now for a few years, which is great, but I also like being engaged in, in what's happening on, on the ground. The way I see it at the moment is I, I haven't seen a role within the game that I'm desperate to to go for or to do, but I think the game is changing so quickly that there will be different and various jobs that, that come up that I, I could potentially like, but certainly around managing, mentoring and, and coaching is, is something that I'm I'd like to do. Where can England's white ball team improve? Are there some new bowlers? You haven't got Archer or Plunkett now. You know, is that the area that you're kind of almost looking for someone to come through? And if so, who might that be? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good question. Um, having gone through a full review of the World Cup, uh, the direction so going into the World Cup, two areas of improvement that we were striving for was was our, our power play bowling and our death bowling. Um, our batting had been in pretty good form going into the tournament. And if you look back at every game that we played bar the last, we were on point. Uh, and for the six months leading in to the tournament, there was a, we were a little bit of victims of our own success. We, we didn't play in many tight games where our bowlers had been under pressure. We, we, we bowled people out for low scores and we chased them down quite convincingly. So... Again, it's an area of improvement that we're, we're trying to get better at. But if you look at the injuries that we, we had pre-World Cup and then the injuries during the World Cup, um, upon reflection, we have to be incredibly proud of where we got to. I mean, going into the last four overs of a semi-final when the opposition need 58, 
and they only have one player that could win the game for them. And he went out and did it. It's 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 pretty unique stuff. So I would say death bowling is probably the biggest area for improvement. The thing the thing people need to understand is it's not it's not just a case of somebody being a good death bowler. I think batters have advanced their game at a quicker rate than bowlers have. If you go back five or six years, you could name a handful of people that would be brilliant death bowlers around the world. Whereas now you would probably say one, which is Jasper Boomer. He's he's incredible. He's, Trent, he's Trent consistent. Maybe. Trent Bolt, maybe? He's okay. Right. Okay. okay. He doesn't have as much deception as, as Bumra and as right. much consistency as Bumra. But you could say Mitchell Stark, who went to the World Cup and didn't have a great time. When, like yeah. guy bowlers, like big name bowlers are still getting hit. He's challenging the bowlers to find something new. And I don't think it's too easy because there, there, there are so, so many limitations to what you can bowl in white ball cricket. And if you bowl marginally down the leg side, it's a wide. If you bowl it too far outside off, it's a wide. If you bowl it over the batsman's head, it's a wide. Obviously, if you bowl a waistside full toss above the waist, it's a free hit. Um, it's just it's just not easy finding options. Batsmen have got 360 degrees of options. They can hit the ball literally in any direction. Bowlers, you know, you've got to tell the umpire if you're going round the wicket. You've got to tell the umpire if you're changing hands and bowling with your left arm instead of your right. Because there are a few more bowlers emerging now in cricket who can bowl with both arms. Liam Livingston doesn't have to tell the, the batsman that he's going to bowl a leg break or an off break, clearly. But... I just feel that it's not easy for bowlers. I mean, we've seen occasionally a fantastic uh, left field bowler, an outlier like Lassith Malinga, who, you know, slung it down from a very low angle and was also had great deception. I think I think Tamal Mills is as good as you get actually. Uh, that that he can bowl rapid deliveries and very good slower balls with no discernible change of action, but he's obviously had injury issues. And then there's someone like Jasper Bumra, who who has a really unconventional action, is very hard to pick up, lets go of the ball, I worked out analytically, um, a little bit closer to the batsman than most bowlers because of his unusually contorted release. So that's one thing, you know, trying to create an action where you are a little bit closer to the batsman, even though your foot is landing in the right place because you let go of the ball that bit later than other bowlers. But, you know, I, I just think... You know, I mean, Morgan is right in a way. Batsmen have, have found uh, greater ways of scoring runs than bowlers have of taking wickets. I think it's one of the reasons why leg-break bowlers have done so well in T20 cricket, because they have that element of surprise you, 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 the, a batter has to be able to work out whether the ball's going to spin uh, from you know it's going to spin away or turn in or just go straight on and that and that is where they've really succeeded leg break bowlers I think that's why they've really come to the fore and why the, you know most of the most successful bowlers relatively speaking they still get thrashed around from time to time but most of the successful bowlers are leg break bowlers because they do have that ability to deceive whereas you know, most most other bowlers don't. It's it's, it's a bit too obvious unless, unless you've got extreme pace, or you've got you know, so, I mean, someone like Jasper Bumrah has got pace and he is a bit unconventional as well. Timal has got pace, and you know he's 
come to the fore. Something like Joffre Archer, he's got that extra pace as well and can bowl a rapid delivery. But even then, you know, the ball can fly off the edge over the deep third for six or whatever, top edge for six as well. So it's about just limiting, isn't it? It's not, it's never, it's rarely about bowling four overs for 14 and taking three wickets. It's about, you know, can you can you get out of your four overs for under 30 or something like that, or 32 runs, something like that on a consistent basis. Actually, I just noticed Timal, one of the recent games that he played in was early December, and he played in that T10 final in, in Abu Dhabi, and he had remarkable figures, actually, of, of two overs, two for four, which, I mean, that's almost incredible, isn't it? In a, in a, in a 10-over match, it was a bizarre game because Andre Russell made 90 not out when the, the, the Deccan Chargers... Sorry, the Deccan Gladiators made 159 for no wicket from 10 overs. I mean, just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is just incredible hitting. Russell, 90 off 32 balls. And then the opposition, Owen Morgan's actually playing for them, the Delhi Bulls, they came up with just over 100. And Tim Alt at two for four from two overs. So 12 deliveries, conceding only four runs. In a, in a, basically, in an innings where everyone is trying to sort of take you on and smash you, you know, to smithereens, you know, you've only got 10 overs. Um, yeah. There you go. So every you know, some, some days it's possible, isn't it, to be to succeed as a bowler and and have those really economical figures. Most of the time, you're just looking to get out with a bit of respectability. Yes, and and actually, what you say about um, Timal Mills underlines the sort of diversity of cricket on offer now, doesn't it? Because the England team for this five match T20 series have come from all sorts of different directions. Uh, their cricket. Some have been playing in the Sri Lankan Premier League. Some, as you say, have been playing in the T10. Sam Billings and James Vince were in the Big Bash via the Test match. So uh, all sorts of weird preparations. I mean, Billings gone from T20 to Test and back to T20 again. It shows how adaptable you need to be. And uh, it's kind of, well, it's, it's the richness of the game, but it's also the absurdity of the game in a way. Trying to cram so much cricket in. There is basically too much, isn't there? Well, I mean, what we see, I think, is now we are beginning to see a, a divergence between red ball and white ball personnel, even more so now. I think it undermines, underlines it, doesn't it, this, this series? And we saw it last summer, didn't we, when England picked that completely different side as well for that, that series against Pakistan, uh, a completely new white ball side, and they were able to be successful. It just shows, I think, the, the depth in talent, again, just underlines that depth in talent in England uh, white ball cricket. The other point about this T20 series as well is that England not that far away from another World Cup. I mean, it's incredible to say. We're only a few months away from another World Cup. In Australia, the draw was made earlier today for that. And England are in the group with Australia, the hosts and defending champions, New Zealand. So they're they're in a group with the two finalists from last time round in the UAE, Afghanistan, England. So those are four teams guaranteed to qualify. And then two other qualifiers... Uh, probably Sri Lanka and then one of the relative uh, minnows from the, the qualifying tournament. Sri Lanka have to qualify as well, but you'd, you'd think they'd be strong enough to, to come through the group in which they are in. So Australia, New Zealand, Afghanistan uh, for England. It, you know, it feels like, I mean, it's, it sounds a bit parochial to say it, but it sort of has that feeling of a of a two from three, doesn't it? Australia, New Zealand uh, and England to qualify for the semi-finals there. But uh, England need to... Uh, have some success, don't they? I think they were expected to do well in the UAE, and they lost in the semi-final. They were they were a couple of bowlers down. 
And I mean, Morgan mentioned that didn't he? In, in his interview. You know, they weren't far away from making the final. But that, you know, despite the fact they they had some injuries, and on another day they probably would have won that match, wouldn't they? I mean, New, New Zealand needed something really special to win in, in Abu Dhabi, and they they found it just at the right moment. Uh, but it, it, I think it's more galling. I think. <laughs> Australia were expected to do well in the Ashes. What was really galling was that they won the T20 World Cup when they weren't supposed to, which sounds a strange thing to say. But, I mean, no one really tipped them. No, no one particularly fancied them. They seemed to have been a bit of a, not, not a rabble, that's the wrong word, but a sort of bit of a ragtag team sort of put together. And they were able to come through and, and, and win the tournament, which I think was galling for, galling for the stats people who, who didn't, didn't fancy them at all. Um, but you think in their own conditions, they, you know, they, they're, they're going to be one of the fa- clearly one of the favourites again, aren't they? <laughs> Coming up in, in October and, and November. I wonder if Justin Langer will be in mm. the Australian coaching job by then, or and I also wonder if uh, another Australian who's been tipped to take over the England coaching Test match team, Ricky Ponting. I wonder if he'll uh, get signed up. No, you don't think so. Well, it it sounds like a sort of good idea. Um, and if if they could pull it off, yeah, you'd say, yeah, not, yeah, perhaps bring it on. I don't know. I mean, he's had some success, hasn't he, Ricky Ponting in in T Twenty coaching, for example. You know, out in the IPL, he's he's turned around the Delhi, well, helped the Delhi Capitals. Uh, they haven't been able to get over the line and win it, but they've been really competitive. I don't know. I mean, he's got he brings all that sort of wealth and experience and, and knowledge. It, every everyone's for hire these days, aren't they? In in international cricket, and we see it a lot in. T20 cricket, but can you see Ricky Ponting coaching the England Test match team? Surely, well, Shane Warne coached a London team in the yeah, that's different, in the hundred. I mean, I know, I suppose that's, that's very a bit different, different, isn't it? I mean, you, you could see Ricky Ponting. I don't know who being involved in Australia's uh, coaching setup, especially if Justin Langer uh, leaves. I mean, let's talk of Trevor Bayliss being Australia's next next coach. Yeah, yeah, very. So, that's a that's a, a strong possibility, I suppose. Really, the likelihood of Ricky Ponting coaching an England Test team is about the same as Ian Chappell sending Ian Botham a Christmas card. Yeah, that's unlikely. I would say that. No, I'd say there's more. No, I'd say there's more chance of Ricky Ponting of coaching. Ricky Ponting. Than, yeah, than that. There's absolutely no. There's absolutely no okay. chance of Ian Chappell and uh, Ian Botham. I think having a, a rapprochement. Um, that, that's my understanding of that situation. Did they? Did they actually? Well, um, in, did they encounter each other at all on this? This uh, on on this ashes because I remember seeing them in I think it was 2017 or it might have been 2013 encounter each other in the car park in Adelaide and it it wasn't pretty. No, I well they were they were both working in the media centre. Whether they saw each other, um, I don't know. Um, let, let let's draw <laughs> let's draw a battle over that <laughs> okay. that one. I think uh, right. Well, so there we are, yours. Um, uh, the, the the cricket goes on. Uh, T20 yeah. action for England uh, over the weekend. England's women are, are in action as well. England's under 19 side are in action, going reasonably well. Well, going very well actually in the under 19 uh, World Cup. Uh, but yeah, look out for the name Tom Prest actually, uh, who you know he's a obviously a very talented batsman, and uh, he scored a two nineties and 150 in the uh, the under 19 World Cup, and he is uh, a user of a particular brand of bat. Where I went, actually, and I'll, this would be a story for another podcast, but I had a very interesting experience, actually, down in Somerset at a, a fairly new bat company called World Class Willow. Uh, very interesting story. Um, I'll tell you about that next week. Um, it's an interesting story about how it all came about and some very good bats. Far too good for me, actually. 
It will indeed. Well, I can't wait for that story, Oz. An absolute ripper um, in, in the offing. Uh, in the meantime, I think it's probably time to get a bit of sleep, get over the jet lag. And, yeah, good good our loins for the continuation of a cricket after what felt like the death of cricket uh, last weekend in, in Tasmania. Not that they were in Australia. They're, they're enjoying themselves and celebrating. And uh, I don't blame them as well. They're, they're T20 World Cup winners. They've thrashed England in the ashes. They're world number one team again. And don't forget uh, to join us, if you can, for our discussion on whether Red Bull cricket actually matters next Thursday night at 7.30pm worldsbestcricketclub.com See you there hopefully Sports Social Podcast Network